Well, I'm very much pleased to be able to address you today. These are unusual circumstances and certainly not what we would choose, but uh, I'm grateful that the IFCA leadership is striving to do everything they can to service the fellowship, and this is among the means by which they're able to do that. I was very grateful to have received the invitation from Henry to speak to the uh, pre-conference with church planters, and I am thrilled at the possibility of being able to be of help to you. Things I am about to share are not new, it's not new material. Most of you are most aware of these principles, but perhaps it will codify them or place them in an organization that could be helpful for you as you are building leadership and leadership teams in your own ministries. The challenge that I have been given and the task that uh, I am set to undertake with you is the discussion of the question of corporate oversight, that is, the quest, the uh, desire to gain appropriate leadership, accountability of leadership, spiritual qualification in leadership, competence of leadership, all those kinds of things are the assignment that I've been given. I was joking around with one of my staff members that the reason I was asked to do this is because um, everyone knows, my reputation goes before me, that I am one who needs to study these things, that I need to uh, uh, continually sharpen myself in this regard and those around me in this regard. So I'm very grateful, knowing that the teacher usually learns more than the student. And so I'm grateful for this opportunity to get up and make this presentation. I've benefited from it. I want to begin by just laying out for you where we are going to go. We're going to begin to talk about spiritual qualifications, and I'm calling that the issue of character. And then we'll move from there to the issue of competence, which uh, is sufficient unto itself, the idea of competence. And then finally, we're going to get into the issue of accountability or personal responsibility that I'm calling culpability. So character, competence, and culpability are the subjects that I want to address with you in this seminar. And I'd like to pray with you. I know that it's remote, but I'm going to lead you in a prayer that you'll be able to utilize even as you prepare your own heart as you watch this seminar. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the fact that as I pray this, days before those who hear this will be praying it, I ask that you would unite our hearts together as men who desire more than anything to be accountable to you, to be competent in what we do, and to be men of character. We ask that this time together would result in growth, further sanctification, and development of ministry burden, zeal, and ability. We pray, Lord, that you would prosper each one who takes advantage of the opportunity to view this recording, and we ask that it would be of great benefit to them and to the people they serve. Well, thank you, Father, for what you choose to do through this. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, church wellness in a thriving local church is marked by leadership, a leadership that is filled with men of solid, biblical, Christ-like character, men who are competent to handle the Word of God, and, of course, men who are accountable or culpable for what they are doing. And I want to begin by talking about the issue of character and we're looking at 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. And you're not surprised that I would go there, is where I think all of us would go when we begin to talk about spiritual leadership and the character that spiritual leadership 
is, uh, or needs, it's necessary, the scripture says, that we have this character. And in 1 Timothy chapter 3, uh, we read this in verses 1 through 7. It is a trustworthy statement, and if any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer, then, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation and those outside, with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. This is the hallmark passage that deals with the issue of the character of a person who is going to be a spiritual leader, an overseer. And within this, there are several features that I want to highlight for you today, and it begins with the issue of a man's intentions, a man's intentions. It says, if any man aspires to the office of an overseer, it's a fine work he desires to do. Now, all of us recognize that the aspiration and the desire is not a qualification in and of itself. Uh, There are lots of people who may aspire to be able to stand up and grab the microphone and speak, but they're not qualified to do so. And so we recognize that alone the desire is not sufficient. But if a man does not have the desire, it is not his intention and his lifelong compulsion to serve in this way it likely is not for him, at least yet, until such a desire is fostered. I think there are several elements that factor into the reality and the identification of a legitimate desire that, or aspiration, as the scriptures here call it, uh, that he should serve as a spiritual leader. And I think this is necessary for us to carefully dissect and investigate in the life of men who desire to serve in spiritual leadership. I have men who have come to me who say, I'd like to be trained for pastoral ministry. And as I've looked at their lives and if I've gone through these various things with them, I've affirmed it. Yes, I believe that you are being instigated by God with an intention that you would serve God as a spiritual leader in the church. Other men have come to me with this desire, and after investigating, I have concluded, no, I don't think this, not at least yet, is your calling. It's not something that is evident that you ought to be pursuing, even though you have a desire for it. So what are the elements that help us understand whether or not a man ought to be pursuing the desire that exists within his heart? Well, I think the first of all is the issue of the call of God, the issue of the call of God. I think this is important for us to recognize that there is such a thing as a call into ministry. And I recognize that we are called by God and the will of God in itself is a calling. We're called first to be saved, and I understand that, to believe on the Lord. That effectual calling is what produces all of us being in Christ. And with that effectual call is the call to serve. So no one is saved without the intention that they would serve. In that passage in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, it talks about how that we, were, we turn from idols to serve the living and the true God. So when we are saved, it's for the purpose of serving. 
And so you're called to be uh, teachers, you're called to be uh, leaders, disciplers, mentors, you're called to usher, you're called to nursery ministry, you're called to, to uh, widows' ministries, children's ministries. We understand that there's a general call as well. But there is a unique call that I think we should not dilute, and that is the call of men of God who are called to stand before the Lord, men who, have, who are qualified, men who are, who are placed into ministry deliberately by the Lord. And I think that idea of a call to ministry is an important aspect of the respect that those in ministry ought to receive and with which the respectability with which they need to aspire to live. Uh, They are uh, unique. And we can see that in that passage in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 12. 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 12 where Paul says, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. That having been strengthened, the scripture says, that there is this awareness of the fact that God supernaturally and sovereignly worked in his life to arrange circumstances, to arrange life, to arrange his faith, to arrange his gifting, strengthened him. Because he considered him faithful, that is the evaluation of his life and his intentions and his desires, and he saw that he was faithful. And then where it really comes down is where he put God himself, Christ Jesus our Lord, put me into service. That word for put there is an interesting term. It's from the word to place. It's tithemi. It's actually uh, an aorist middle participle form of tithemi that has the idea that the the middle voice refers to God himself doing this. This isn't something that is left up to a committee. It's not left up to the individual. It is something that God himself does. He places us into the ministry, deliberately placing us into where he wants us to serve and how he wants us to serve. I serve as the lead pastor at Grace Bible Church of Fair Oaks. I believe that God not only called me to serve as a pastor, but called me to serve this group of people. And so he has put me into this ministry. And I believe that that is part of what God has done by deliberately placing uh, us himself into ministry. Without our determination... It is something that he sovereignly ordains. And so he, first of all, if there's a call to ministry, there is going to be an attendant desire, an aspiration that God is going to instigate in one's heart to serve as a pastoral leader. And I think that's part of the character of a man, that he has a sense that he is called. These things are going to aid him during days of difficulty, days of discouragement, days of opposition and criticism and failure and people leaving the church, people going to other ministries or people apostatizing or people into whom you've poured your life turning on you and betraying you or somehow becoming a um, um, uh, uh, diatrophies or something that can crush the heart of a man who is serving the Lord with abandon and with devotion and with selflessness. And all of a sudden you experience these great discouragements. What is it that helps us be sustained in the midst of great hours of discouragement? It's the sense that God has put us into this ministry. He's called us. That's also seen in that passage in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 4, 
where the scripture says, uh, but just as I have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. There are two phrases there that really address the issue of one's call. The first one is the issue that we are approved by God. That word means that we have been critically examined by God, and the conclusion is approval. So God has taken us, he's looked at our lives, he has examined us, and our faithfulness, as Paul indicated in the previous verse in 1 Timothy 1.12, that he considered me faithful, he evaluates, and when he evaluates, he critically examines, and he concludes that we are approved. That is a perfect passive indicative, meaning that there, it's a point in time in the past where God made the decision to entrust the gospel to us. That that is a decision that has been made after we have been examined by God. And I think there's a variety of factors I don't have time to go into that goes into that examination. And I think he does that in part through ordination and other processes within the context of the local church. But really, God is the one who is putting us, placing us into ministry, who is examining us and approving us and then entrusting us. That word entrusting that is there in uh, the 1 Thessalonians 2 passage is a, a, a word that uh, really can be crudely translated. He places faith in us. It's pistuo. It has the idea of to believe in or to trust. It's the same word that we use with reference to saving faith, where we trust God. God considers us worthy of his trust. This is one of the reasons why when a man, when a man uh, betrays the trust engages in immorality or somehow into false, false living or deception and, and deceit, and, and he betrays the trust that it's such an egregious offense and why he forfeits. Paul described it in 1 Corinthians 9 as being disqualified because the trust that God placed in you was betrayed. There is this great severity that is to be Uh, associated with betraying the trust that God places on us when he gives to us the responsibility to proclaim the gospel. And as a result, so we speak. Not pleasing men, but God, the one who examines our hearts and approves us and trusts us. We must not betray that. That is the intention of of our heart. I have this desire, this yearning, to never betray the trust that God has placed in me as he has called me into ministry and placed me into ministry and evaluated me, examined me, and considered me faithful and has put me into the ministry. This is the call of God. And so with reference to the intention, the intention means that I am going to fulfill my calling. That's what I will do. I will fulfill my calling. And I'm going to do so with a desire to finish strong. I um, was greatly influenced by my father as he approached the end of his life that his great yearning was to finish well. That's what the, um, really the theme of his book, uh, Ministry Matters, uh, highlights is the 
aspiration, even in the 20-something-year-old pastors, men who are evaluated, considered faithful, called of God, put into the ministry, entrusted with the gospel, that even then they need to have an aspiration to carry the baton of the gospel entrusted to them all the way until their dying breath. When I was at Bob Jones, we used to sing um, Souls for Jesus. Uh, It's a song that talks about I'll, uh, th- that's our battle cry. Souls for Jesus is our battle cry. Souls for Jesus. Um, and it says, I'll fight until I die. Never giving in. Um, and deliver men from sin. Souls for Jesus is our battle cry. Never giving in. Uh, there's a song that we also sing that we are preach the gospel till our dying breath. And that's the aspiration. That's the intention of a man who is called by God. He has the aspiration. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it's a fine work he desires to do. That is given by God at a call from God where he examines you and places you, puts you deliberately into ministry. Let us never let go of that basic element in our character as spiritual leaders. He calls us into ministry. This is true not only of a lead pastor, but it is also true of elders in general, even lay elders. This is something true. God is the one who raises up men to serve him and to shepherd his flock. And so we need to recognize how important it is. And that leads to the second thing, and I've touched on it briefly, and that is the issue of the fact that um, we aspire, aspire. That idea of aspire carries with it the notion of a, uh, a yearning or a, uh, a, a goal that you set and that you endeavor to reach. That is this notion of aspire, that you have a goal and you desire to reach the goal. And of course, the goal that we possess and the aspiration that we possess is not preeminence. It is the aspiration of serving as a slave and as a mouthpiece for the gospel. And that becomes the issue that we find in terms of what it is that God has indeed called us to do. We recognize that not everyone is going to have that craving. And without that craving, there is the uh, lack of certainty as to whether a people ought to be in the ministry. Uh, We believe that that is something that Uh, is given by God, stirred up by God. If we delight in the Lord, he will give us the desires of our heart, the psalmist says. And so we we recognize that notion, and we pray that God would provide us with the fulfillment of that. And that's a lifelong pursuit. That is the lifelong pursuit that we possess, that we are going to serve the Lord. And and as we do, that's a that's interestingly with that aspiring. That's a present middle, again, uh, indicative. And uh, it, it, it is something that places the, the onus on us. That, that is something we ourselves possess. It, it shouldn't be an aspiration that anybody foists upon you. It should not be an expectation. That, for instance, I remember as a, as a pastor's Son, I was asked, are you going to be a pastor since your father was a pastor? And I remember resenting that, that it was being forced upon me. And I used to tell my children, my son, who, uh, my oldest son, who is a pastor, um, 
we trained them when they were young that if anyone asks you, are you going to be a pastor when you grow up? Say, I don't know, but one thing I do aspire for is to be faithful to the Lord in whatever he expects me to do. So my aspiration is to be faithful as an adult. And I think that's key. So this should be something that really God generates within you. And then the second thing he says there, not only are you aspiring to the office, but it's a fine work he desires to do. That idea of desire means to long for something, to long for the privilege of doing this, and then crave it to set uh, one's heart on something. And this is where we get into the issue of, you know, there's been that old phrase, if you can do something other than pastoral ministry, then you should. That's not an address of skill. I think uh, people can be all kinds of things. I aspire to be a lawyer. I think that if that's what God had had for me, I could have been a, a lawyer I, I, or a doctor or a, a plumber or if I wanted to make good money, a plumber. The, the idea would be that uh, it's not an issue of skill or ability. It's an issue of yearning, of desire, of satisfaction. If you can be satisfied doing anything else, by all means, do it but I can't be satisfied doing anything else. And that's what led me into this. After I had preached at my high school graduation, I preached a sermon on Daniel and being a man of character. I was bit and I realized that there was nothing that's going to satisfy me and fulfill me like this. And I'd yearn to do that. And that's a desire that, that God generated within my heart, that aspiration and that desire. Uh, I would not be satisfied doing anything else. So the call into ministry, God himself placing us into ministry. When he calls you into ministry, he generates this desire or aspiration to serve in ministry. The third aspect of the intention with reference to character is the issue of counsel. Counsel. I think it's necessary that we go to godly men, older godly men, godly counselors, who are able to look at our lives and say, yes, you demonstrate the call of God, the, the aspiration and desire and the competence. And, and it seems as if you are gifted in this area. I think that if everyone around us is saying, eh, I don't think you ought to pursue pastoral ministry, then likely we shouldn't. Now, I'm not talking about unsaved friends and just general peers. I'm talking about godly people we trust. Going to counselors and finding guidance in counselors. And if they affirm the desire that you possess with reference to the call of God, if your counselors are affirming your craving that results from your call, then your intention is settled. What you ought to intend to do is more firmly settled. But not only that, but we also have... Um, and awareness of the confirmation that generally occurs. So you have counsel and then an official confirmation. And you can see this in Acts 13, verses 2 through 4, where Paul and Barnabas are serving there in the church in Antioch. And while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then when they had fasted and prayed, they laid their hands on them. They sent them away. And so being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. But it's interesting. God says to the church and to the leaders of the church, set 
these men apart. That's confirmation. That's the idea of ordination. And they fasted and they prayed, and when they found confirmation in their own hearts, then they laid their hands on them. That's ordination. And then they, that is, the church, sent them away. But notice the summary statement. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down. But it's the church that was used as the confirmation of the call of God, the craving of God, and the counsel that they had pursued. Now there's this official confirmation that these men were indeed called by God and that the desire and the craving that they possess was instigated by God and the counsel that exists for them to pursue ministry was confirmed by the church in general. The, the, the consensus of believers that have been surrounding that person was they are showing that they are called by God. And that's what confirmation is about in ordination as well. And then the charge with reference to your intention. If you are called, if you do have a craving for the office of an overseer and the work of an overseer, you gain counsel and it's affirmed and confirmed by the church in general, what are you supposed to do? What's your intention? What's your charge? What are you called to do? Well, that First Peter chapter 5 and verse 3 is really where we ought to turn for this. And so let me read this for you, if you want to turn there. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And so the charge that you have received is that you would shepherd the flock of God, protecting and feeding that flock, exercising oversight, that is, that you would care for them and do so voluntarily, eagerly, not lording over, but providing an example. That's what you're called to do. So we teach by what we say and by how we live. That is to be an example of the believer, that in the way you live, in the practicing of what you're preaching, that's what your intention is in your life. So your aspiration, involved in the aspiration and the desire to do the work of the, in the office of an overseer is an aspiration to have integrity in life that matches a message you preach and that you're caring for others within the flock of God. So your life is not your own. You're investing yourself in their care. That's key with reference to your character. What is your intention? Why do you have that intention? Who's going to confirm that intention? And is it a casual thing that you can take or leave? Well, if it is, then you probably ought to leave it. The second thing with reference to character, not only is there the issue of intention, but there's the issue of identity the issue of identity. We find in this the idea of an oversire, uh, overseer. Of course, there is an awareness of the fact that, that uh, you do a work. Verse 1 says, uh, if you desire the office of an overseer, it's a fine work he desires to do. So you are, are doing 
what an overseer does, but in verse 2, you're identified as an overseer. That's who you are. And this teaches us that ministry is not just a gig that you do, then you go home. An overseer and a minister of the gospel is who you are. That's who you are. And so this identity, you are a pastor, and you never are off. You're always on. You're always a pastor. Even on your days off, you're a pastor. And to your wife, you're a pastor. To your children, you're a pastor. And, And I think that it's important for us not to draw a dichotomy between what I do as a minister of the gospel and who I am. I know that this goes cross-grain to much of the popular teaching today, but it's necessary for us to recognize that that idea of you just do ministry is not correct. It is that you are a minister. Hence, there isn't a dichotomy between my home and the church. I don't try to protect my home from the church. I don't dissect my home from the church. My home is an element as part of the church. Just like every other home in the church is a part of the church. My home is a part of the church. And I am still a pastor when I'm in my home. I understand that. And so it's my identity. My wife is the very first one I serve as a pastor. I disciple her. I teach her. I care for her. I protect her more than anyone else. And then my children also. They're like the, your family is like the Peter, James, and John of the disciples of Christ. He had the other nine also, but the foremost ones in which he invested were the three. That's like your family, and then the other nine is like your church. And so don't draw a distinction. You are always a pastor. Never forget that. That's who you are. And I think that's incredibly important when it comes to the issue of possessing character. Fourthly, with reference to character, or I should say thirdly, with reference to character, is the necessity to be uh, uh, without reproach or irreproachability. You must be above reproach. And I think that's an important aspect as well of this, be above reproach. And therefore, I think that generally, and some of you may have read the article that I put in the Voice magazine on this subject, and that is that there really are only two qualifications for spiritual leadership. Number one is your desire or your intention. And the second thing is that you are blameless. The word blameless is then delineated throughout the rest of the verses there in 1 Timothy chapter 3. What does blamelessness look like? And then all those characteristics are describing blamelessness. So you have to desire it and you have to be blameless. I remember one occasion in Byron Center, actually, when I had been a pastor for maybe five or six years, and I was a young man at the time. I was in my early 30s. And uh, I was trying to be light and salt in our community, and I would attend the ministerial association meetings once a month, and I would go. And even though most of them were very, very liberal, and, and really many of them were likely unsaved, I would go as salt and light, and I would lead in conversations and discussions. And I remember one occasion we were talking about elders and how we recruit elders and these guys were going, we just go through our directory, our membership list, and the, it's these guys' turn. It's your turn to serve on the elder board. And I go, whoa, what about the qualifications in First Timothy? And they say, 
well, what do you mean? And I says, well, in First Timothy, it's, uh, it gives you the qualifications. Do the men who are taking turns meet those qualifications? Ah, <laughs> no, of course not. Nobody meets those qualifications. And I go, whoa, what does it say that it is necessary? The scripture clearly says an overseer then must be above reproach. The word is de or necessary. How do you get around that? Well, if we did that, nobody would qualify. We wouldn't have any elders. And I go, well, that's not true. The expectation is that these are characteristics of a believer and are minimal characteristics of spiritual leadership. These aren't the super elite. These are the minimal things. And then there are other things that you would expect a spiritual leader also to demonstrate in his life. But if a man doesn't have these, then he's disqualified. Well, that's impractical. Nobody's going to. We see them more as suggestions. And I say, you can't because of what this says. And then they turned on me and they said, okay, so Mr. Spiritually Qualified, you assess, you think you're qualified to do it? And I could see the trap being sprung here where I was going to be seen as arrogant. And I said, actually, no. My heart, the, the closer you become to Christ the less qualified you see yourself as being. And I am amazed every day that I have been given this privilege and honor to serve Christ as a leader in the church. I said, interestingly, there are two qualifications. There's one that is the aspiration or desire. The other is the blamelessness. One of them I am not qualified to assess, and that is my blamelessness. I can't assess that. Uh, it, because it's all reputational. It's how other people see me. I depend upon the church to assess that, and they have assessed it, and they have determined that I am qualified, and I trust the Lord to lead through them. The one that I am able to assess is my desire. I have the responsibility to assess my desire. No one else can tell me what I want. The only one who can assess that qualification is me. I have the desire, and the church says I am blameless. Hence, there is qualification. And I think we need to recognize that as such, we must be above reproach. The idea of above reproach means that we're without handles. That is, there's nothing sticking out that somebody can take and accuse us of. No examples or characterological sins that are prohibited in that passage, and really any sin that exists, that people are going to use as a club to beat you, going to grab that handle and beat you with it, and illegitimize you as a spiritual leader. That's what it means to be without reproach. And as such, that fourth characteristic here is the issue, so you have intention, you have identity, you have irreproachability, and the fourth one is integrity. Integrity. And I think that's the relationship that exists between um, blamelessness, that is, no one can see, and holiness, which is an actual state of being. An actual state of being. Notice what the Scripture tells us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. Flip over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and look at verse 13. 1 Thessalonians 3.13 where it says, so that he may establish your hearts without blame 
in holiness before our God. So without blame would be the assessment of the people around you, and holiness would be the assessment of God, of you. You can have a reputation of being blameless, but be unholy. And that is the man who does not possess integrity. Integrity is crucial in the character of a man who is going to be a spiritual leader. Just because nobody is condemning you or accusing you does not mean that you're still qualified. There is the necessity of holiness, that sanctification that is the will of God in our lives, that we are constantly pursuing. And Paul made it clear that it's not as though any of us have attained. I mentioned earlier that the closer you become to Christ, the more any spot or wrinkle stands out in your life. The more distant you are from Christ, the more arrogant and self-confident and, and uh, 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 unconcerned you are about the issue of holiness. The closer you grow to Christ, the more concerned you become with the issue of holiness. And so there is this awareness of the integrity that needs to exist within a man's heart. So when we talk about the issue of character, we're talking about the intention, the desire, the identity, who you are as a pastor or an overseer, the irreproachability of being blameless, and the integrity of being holy. That is part of the character. And a vibrant church is going to be led by a man who has character, according to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1-7. through 7. Now, to follow up, the next issue that we need to address beyond the issue of character is the issue of competence, the issue of competence. And for this one, I would go to the passage in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15. 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 15, where it says, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman that does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. And there are uh, several things that I want to call to our attention here, and I want to break these into four uh, principles as well with reference to the issue of competence. The first issue is the issue of your head. This is the intelligence, the facts, the knowledge that you gain, the study that you do. The King James quotes this as saying, study to show yourself approved unto God. Uh, the NAS says, be diligent. And you would believe it's in study because the, end, the upshot of it all is that you're rightly dividing the word of truth. And so therefore, studying is inherent in the diligence. So you're applying yourself intellectually to grasp the truths of God's word. The ministry is no place for a lazy mind. There needs to be a curiosity that craves satisfaction with knowledge that causes you, when you study the Word of God, that you're digging deeply into it, that you're, you're not say, staying superficial, that there is a curiosity. And as you study, you have that curiosity that demands to be satisfied and that you're not going to let go of the text until the curiosities of your mind, the desire to know, is something that is satisfied. There is this responsibility to constantly be learning, constantly to be broadening your perspective, broadening your exposure to truth, reading. At uh, BMW, they have this um, core value in leadership called lifelong learning. We are committed, 
with reference to the head, and then you have the heart and the hands as well. But with reference to the head, you have a commitment to lifelong learning. Constantly reading, constantly studying, constantly uh, searching articles and blogs and, and um, texts and books that you're looking to read to better yourself as a man of God, to read things. I, in, in, in my pursuit of, uh, of a, a, a mind that is sharp, I read other things than biblical or theological things. I read theological and biblical things plenty as well, but um, biographies and novels and histories and all kinds of things that satisfies a mind that desires to be sharp, desires to not become dull or fattened or lazy, that there's I, I discipline the mind and have that mind constantly being renewed and constantly being challenged. I think that is part of the competence of a spiritual leader. Men who study the Word of God for an hour or two and then stand up in the pulpit and pontificate as if they're expert are not qualified. That's not going to be a vibrant, thriving church. Uh, a, a church that's vibrant is a church that has in its leadership competence. And competence necessitates a head that is sharp, that is well-informed, that understands the truth, that studies the truth, that satisfies its own curiosity, and that gets down the facts of God's Word. That's followed up by a heart, because the Pharisees knew a lot, but they didn't have a heart that went with it. And so there needs to be this desire and always this recognition of the necessity of presenting yourself approved unto God. There's a relational priority in competence. I need to uh, preach to myself. When I study the Word of God, I study it, and the first one who applies it and the first locus of application is my own heart. There are times in my office where I'm studying God's Word and I'm wincing in conviction because the Spirit of God is doing work in my own heart and I am studying not just to tell those people out there, but I am studying because I desire for the truth that I'm learning to be something that is filtered through my own life and my own heart and that I am standing up and when I proclaim the Word of God, that I am doing so with a man of integrity whose holiness and whose submission to the authority of the Word of God has been proven before God in the office of my study as I have worked through and labored through and wrestled with God through the text. That is necessary with reference to the competence. You're not, you don't have competence to stand before the people of God and preach the word of God until you have listened to God and submitted to him yourself. That is the heart in reference to ministry, of competence in ministry. That's the heart. And then, of course, you have the hands. And that's found in that passage where it says, as a workman, that does not need to be ashamed. As a workman. The idea there, as that workman is, it comes from the same root as energy or a doer. Not being a hearer of the word, but a 
doer, a workman, an energized person who takes what you know and practices it. A workman who studies the Word of God, who, who with energy approaches the Scripture so that when you preach the Word of God, that people see that this is something that you are energized by and that you are, you are excited about. There are times when I preach and and uh, this pulpit becomes a barrier between me and the congregation because I'm just about to crawl out of my skin, leap out of my shoes, over this pulpit, into the laps of the people in the congregation. Now, I never would, even if the pulpit weren't here. But the congregation sometimes says to me as I'm leaving, as they're leaving and I'm greeting them at the door, uh, they'll say things like, oh man, I thought you were going to come right over the pulpit to us. And um, there's this this energy that is associated with it. Uh, the Word of God cannot be something that we just lecture as if we're some professor that is just going through motions. It needs to be energized. You need to be a workman. And when you're done preaching, people ought to see the sweat on your brow because of the effort that you have put into delivering that message. And then the fourth aspect of competence is your hermeneutic. I think we need to pay attention to this. And this really brings all of it together, the head, the heart, the hands, all of it um, kind of graduates into what is our hermeneutic? What do we do? How do we interpret the word of God? And that's found in that phrase, rightly dividing the word of truth. So your head, as you study the truth, your heart, as you process the truth, your hands, as you preach the truth, all are part of what produces a hermeneutic, not only in a theoretical sense of principles of interpreting the Scripture in, 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 the, in the intellectual sense, but in the spiritual sense, the emotional sense, and the practical application sense, are, ab- are people ab- able to see your hermeneutic. They can see your intelligence. They can see your, your heart and your emotions. They can see your hands as you practice it but they need to be able to see how you're interpreting God's Word by means of how you live. That's competence in ministry. Not just in preaching, but in shepherding, in tending to the sheep, in your visiting, in your counseling, in your caring for the people. A church that is going to be thriving and well is going to have a pastor who is competent because of the influence of God's Spirit in his life using the Word of God. And then finally, we have the issue of culpability. Culpability of the accountabilities that exist before God. And the passage of Scripture that, that really generates the thoughts here is that passage in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, where it says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom... Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. This is the issue of culpability. And I have four principles here that I'll very quickly share with you. Number one, there is the issue of compulsion. Compulsion. That is, we do what we do because the Spirit of God is driving us to do it. And He is generating us and guiding us. Uh, The Spirit of God is the one who leads us. We need to be led by the Spirit in ministry. The Spirit of God needs to fill us. And this is part of what it means to be filled with the Spirit. That when we are filled with the Spirit, 
We have the characteristics of the Holy Spirit that the Scriptures promise will be ours, the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and self-control. The, 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 the Spirit of God drives us in our ministry. There are times when, and when I don't want to do something. I'm tired or I'm, I've had a difficult experience or I'm, I've wrestled with an issue with somebody and all of a sudden I see a need and I have the impulse and the convulsion by the Spirit to seek to meet that need and I go, no, I don't want to do that. And then the Spirit of God just starts prodding and prompting and urging and and I have to say, okay, okay, I serve you. And then you do that and all of a sudden that becomes so very fruitful and it has ramifications and ripples that go through either your congregation or that family where you can say the Spirit of God drove me and used me, and I would be accountable if I said no to that. I have the responsibility, the culpability to obey the compulsion of the Holy Spirit, to be driven to do what I do because the Spirit of God is directing me to do it. Secondly, under the culpability, is the issue of constraint. The issue of constraint. The, the idea of compulsion is the driving to do things we ought to do the constraint is the keeping us from doing things we ought not do. That's the constraint by the Holy Spirit. And of course, the principal means of constraint is the Scriptures. So the Spirit is the one who provides us the, the, uh, uh, the desire to do certain things. That's the compulsion by the Spirit. But the constraint is from the Scriptures, meaning that the, the Bible, the Word of God, provides the parameters of what is appropriate in ministry. Now, I'm not talking about the advocating the regulatory principle. That's not what I'm suggesting. Although there is an element, uh, a flavor of the regulatory principle that ought to dominate our churches, and that is that we need to do what the Scriptures teach us to do. The style you with you do it, the the timing with which you do it, or, or whatever, that, that's something that needs to be from ministry to ministry. But that really the constraint of what we do in ministry needs to be provided by God's Word. So we need to be men of the book. Thirdly on here is your conscience. You're accountable to your sensibilities. Your compulsion is by the Spirit. Your constraint is through the Scriptures. Your conscience is determined by your sensibilities. That is, the things that you have been sensitized to and are sensible to you based on your familiarity with the heart of God and, the, and the, the, um, the compulsions of the Holy Spirit, the constraints of His Word, that certain sensibilities develop that you ought to listen to and practice in your ministry if you're going to give an account one day. You need to do so sensibly. If something seems inappropriate, don't do it. If in doubt, don't allow your conscience to help you because you're going to stand before the Lord one day and your conscience is going to be evaluated and it needs to be intact. And then fourthly, and I think this is an important principle, we could have talked the whole time about this, and that's the issue of your colleagues. Your colleagues. You are accountable to other servants as well. You're accountable to the Holy Spirit. You're accountable to the Scriptures. You're accountable to your sensibilities and you're accountable to other servants, and that's your colleagues. This is why the plurality of elders is so important. I have um, eight 
other elders uh, that exist here at, at Grace Bible of Fair Oaks. These men are counselors. They're my colleagues. I'm accountable to them. They confront me. They encourage me. They, I say, men, what, we ought, what ought we do about this? And they weigh in. And, and I'm just so grateful to have colleagues to whom I'm able to be accountable and enjoy accountability. Righteousness delights in accountability. Wickedness shuns accountability. The only people who don't like accountability are the people that are doing things that they, they themselves in their self-will want to do. And that really is something we ought to shy away from. And so our responsibility is to remain accountable to other servants, our colleagues in ministry, in the plurality of elders. Which is why one of the reasons that we need to be engaged in um, leadership development, which is another passion of mine, leadership development, is that um, we need to be fostering up leaders because the church is safer with more elders. So we want to develop elders. The problem that most pastors have with developing men in leadership is they create a monster. Because once they develop them and they become leaders, now the pastor has to cope with them. They ha- they're accountable to them. They have to listen to them. It's not just me and my ideas. It's us and our ideas. But wait, we don't agree. Now what are we going to do? I'm the pastor. You'll do what I say. Really? Really? No. It's seeking the Spirit of God to bring unity between you and the safety that occurs as you both learn from one another or all of us get together. I had one elder at one point say, hey, we don't need any more elders. It's hard enough to get everybody to agree as it is. And I go, whoa, 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 time out. Um, When God's Spirit brings us to unity, we have affirmation. We know there's safety in that. And he can do that in one heart, two hearts, five hearts, ten hearts. The Spirit of God can bring unity. And when all the men are godly and all the men are seeking the Spirit of God and all the men are willing to be teachable, which is another principle, then we have the ability to gain unity. Well, I trust that these things have been helpful to you as we've talked about the issue of a vibrant church and the church wellness that we all aspire for. It's going to require leaders who are filled with character, filled with competence, and filled with a sense of culpability for their ministries. And may our churches be well served as we plant them, build them, edify them, and seek to present every man complete in Christ. Thank you very much.